today's episode of Future Says, we have Maria Luciana Accente, the Responsible AI and AI for Good lead at PwC. She's a globally recognised AI ethics expert, an advisory board member of the UK government's all-party group on AI, and a passionate advocate for children and youth rights in the age of AI through her work at UNICEF. Hello and welcome to Future Says. Maria, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So during the course of this series, we speak a lot about the wonderful inventions that we have AI to thank for. But I'm always conscious to pay equal attention to some of the fundamental questions that it poses to society in general. We've all seen the headlines and news articles about rogue algorithms, discriminatory facial recognition, inherent biases in data and decision making. We've seen deep fake videos, which are often used maliciously, rise from just 6,000 on the web in 2019 to well over 100 million today. With all of these new and novel applications for AI flooding our worlds, it's clear that we need to set new regulation to protect our privacy and protect our dignity. I believe that this is a topic that's going to dominate the press for many years to come. I can't think of anyone better to speak about it than Maria. So Maria, can you give us your high level thoughts on things like responsible AI, AI for good, and where you and PwC play a role? So first of all, I think most important is to acknowledge that ahead of us or around us, we develop and use a technology that's novel compared with everything that we had in the past. Technology that is set to mimic and replicate some of the characteristic of human intelligence, like thinking, acting, learning, perceiving the external environment. As a result, we need to start reflecting upon how a technology that mimics so much better the abilities of the characteristic of human intelligence needs to be built and used in a way that suits us as humans. And I think that's the biggest question that we are having right now. I think this is where us in PwC and my personal work inside my team is being focused, to be able to work with the team to understand what are the implication and impact of using those type of technology and how to best design it and how to best manage it in a way that abides to certain rules, certain values that we have ourselves or our clients have. And in the end, being able to learn, not only being able to achieve the optimal results, but also continue to learn how to best fine tune our processes, our skills, and our mindset, ultimately, to be able to thrive alongside this type of artifacts. And to enable that, am I right in saying PwC have quite recently released a nine-step formula towards ethical AI within your enterprise? You're right to say that, but it's a part of a wider thinking that we had built in the last four years, which is called Responsible AI Toolkit. And this framework is part of Responsible AI proposition that looks at how do you identify all the relevant ethical principles and issues that are applicable in a context and being able to translate those ethical values into norms and further down into design and governance requirements that are then being actioned upon them by your compliance and governance people, but also more importantly by your technical team. And the nine comes from the fact that we have run a research about two years ago, which is still ongoing to identify all the possible ethical principles that exist out there. And in this work, we've probably surveyed close to 200 different documents. We ended up 
this identifying of 155 different ethical principles. But when we analyze them and aggregate them, we find that in reality, there are nine meta-ethical principles uh, that could be applicable in, in any domain. And the reason we have done this is to say, whenever we want to start this journey, either you are a third party or for ourselves, is to say, we have all the ethical principles that are applicable and we can cherry pick ours that are most relevant. And therefore, we have the certainty that we're not one, we don't reinvent the wheel and we we ground our work in the best research and the best work that's being done out there by uh, researchers and practitioners in the field. And secondly, being able to cover all the possible ethical consideration in this. And that's where the, the framework is coming from. And we've applied successful to ourselves and to our clients. The reason clients like it so much is because we don't come to them and say, this is what PwC says are the nine ethical principles. It's based on a research, it's based on surveying the work of many others and being able to bring that to the clients to be able to choose what is relevant. And do you find, Maria, then when you're speaking to these clients about these ethical principles, are these clients generally large enterprises? Are they medium enterprises? Are they small where does this sort of conversation concentrate at the moment? That's an excellent question. I think at the moment, most of the conversation we had are with large organizations. The nature of their work and the fact they operate in various jurisdictions and the fact that they have, in reality, bigger budgets to allocate to something as expensive as AI, for them, it becomes a priority also due to the fact that the latest regulatory developments in European Union are sending the signal that the compliance around AI will need to change. And it's very much also linked with the adoption of AI. More mature you are in adopting and using AI, sooner you understand uh, that this is a must-have. And it's not just about identifying the right values and attempt to incorporate them. It's about building sustainable operations that will be able to govern end-to-end the development and use of AI, but also being able to identify and mitigate risk when this emerges. When it comes to industries, most of our clients, we've seen a lot of activity in the last two, three years, so before the framework, are in fact financial services, but now we've observed that technology, media, and telecom is another industry that seems to be interested in the topic. It's fair to say that from their perspective, I think their focus is much more on data ethics than on AI ethics. But the reality is, is once you start preparing yourself and you develop a certain robustness in addressing data ethics challenges, then you're a step, several steps closer to being able to handle the moral challenges of AI way better in a sustainable manner. So you mentioned some industries there. So can you go into practical use cases that you've done at PwC, either externally or even internally, where this framework and these principles have really come into account? I think there are, certain, there are two layers to how this type of approach operates. In, in a way, our framework is suitable because it's so modular, it's suitable to be applied to any organization and any needs, because there are some general principles. First of all, you identify what are the values and the principles you want to apply. Secondly, you identify your requirements for governance. So how well you govern the development and use of AI. And thirdly, how well prepared are you to identify and mitigate risks? So if you look at those three buckets, they're applicable to any organization doing, doing AI. Some of them are in various other degrees of 
or having various degrees of maturity on those three buckets. So what we typically do, it's, you know, typical part of the consulting process is you sit down with the client and understand their needs. The example that I'm working, one of the use cases I'm working at the moment is with my own team. We are building a platform that looks at using AI in order to identify the the resilience to stress of our colleagues. So we partner with a company that uh, has built a name for themselves in helping improve uh, performance of the professional athletes in Formula One, in football and athletics. And we are using the experience they had in performance, in human performance, in the sports domain, translating it into the professional services domain. And my role is to run or perform the ethical analysis to understand what are the only implications for us collecting this type of data, providing this type of insights, how this will change and impact the personal behavior of our colleagues, the leadership, the way a major decision are being done inside the firm. And it's very exciting because it's a project that it's very novel. It's the field of human performance analytics is is at early stages. And as a result, it's a lot of discovery work that I'm doing and applying a lot of those principles and tools that we've created for our clients. Now we have tested the product level and say, if we have done all that's necessary according to our internal compliance and we have addressed all the big moral and ethical questions and we are responding to those challenges, what else needs to be done, for example, at an organizational level for us to be able to continue this work? And while I also have been busy in helping our organization transform as we've done through our clients, this project allows us to actually see the gap. To see, for example, that we definitely need to encourage more diversity in our team. And while we're not talking just about diversity of age and gender, we're talking about cognitive diversity, that there are some projects like this one that involve understanding the human psyches and human behavior. So you have to be able to bring human scientists aboard and, and others will require social scientists and legal experts to be able to explore the different angles of a project like this. Sounds absolutely awesome, Maria. Definitely interested to see the results from that. Just at the end there, you sort of mentioned the, the legal aspects. I know one of the, the points in the framework is lawfulness. One of the biggest things that have come out of this domain in recent years came in April this year, and the EU was the first governmental body to release any sort of regulation on the development and use of AI. So keen to hear your thoughts on that. Is it the finished article? Is there more to come? Where do you sit on that? This framework has triggered a lot of assessment, which is a very good thing. But the reality is this is a first of its kind. It's the first ever regulation that is specifically designed for AI, and it comes to complement the the famous GDPR that has changed forever how we perceive protection in the world of AI. And I think probably the first and most important benefit of having a such law is to send them a very clear and a clear message from the European perspective is that it doesn't work anymore in the tech context the mantra of break, move fast and break things and, and do things just because you can. It's the mantra that has brought us Silicon Valley. It's almost, I would say, probably on a more abstract level, this framework allows us to contrabalance things, right? Silicon Valley that has gone so far with disregarding the implication of building technology. And now European Commission with this act is coming and say, but you have to consider the implication. You have to be able to measure the impact your technology is going to have. And with that, 
there are certain boundaries or certain limits that should not be crossed. And hence, as a result, banning some type of application like social scoring that we've seen so widely used in countries like China. But on the other hand, when you look at applications that have a high impact, they define it at high risk, then you have to deploy a certain type of governance and a certain level of compliance that will give enough safety measures and in order to mitigate for the negative impacts of this type of technology. And I think that's the biggest benefit of, of this framework. And there are still many things that probably could be improved and things that could be done differently. But the reality is that you have to start from somewhere. You have to draw a line in the sand and say, this is how we would want and this is how we will build AI in the future in, in Europe. And from there, you know, we can see how we actually use this framework in a positive way, not to stifle innovation, which we've heard, you know, many companies, especially that many operating in the, in the tech sector crying out, this could stifle innovation. And that was the narrative we had for years and balance that with a, a proper, a solid protection of the individuals and in society against malevolent use and misuse and abuse of this type of technology. And I think that's probably the biggest message out there. You know, we are looking to protect individuals and society and to make sure that certain limits will not be crossed. And in this process, we will attempt to make the best out of this technology. So finding this right balance into between benefits and risk, and that's what this framework hopefully will be able to do. Yeah. And I know GDPR, you mentioned, took many years to, to actually come into action. About from when 20 it was years, as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, quite a long time. So I'm sure maybe this will be no different. But my question to you, Maria, is what disruption do you think organizations will feel off the back of this regulation? Ones that do things like credit scoring in banks or do things like facial recognition, etc.? I think that that's a very interesting question. I probably the disruption they will feel the most is an increased cost in compliance. How big this increased cost in compliance will, I think, differ very much from industry to industry. If you look at financial services, due to again the nature of their industry and being an industry that's highly regulated, compliance is a regular stream of their business. But others, I think, they will struggle because they will have to, to a certain degree, invest much more in compliance they have done in the past. I think probably that's the first one. The second one, I think, hopefully, there will be a, a higher degree of scrutiny of how this technology is being used in the context. You know, look at facial recognition. I hope there are certain cases where companies will defer using it because of the potential harms will outshine the benefits. And regulations like this hopefully will build a bit of a hold. Technologies like facial recognition, we understand so little. And if you look at specifically facial recognition and its deployment in social contexts, like in school or schools or public spaces, and the fact that this technology is so intrusive and it erodes even more the private space of an individual, and we don't know what to do about it. And we don't know what exactly are the implications for our democratic society having very little privacy left. I hope that this will take a positive turn and company will pause and reflect, you know, the capitalist society in its quest for eternal growth and eternal improvement in productivity has little time to reflect. And hopefully the AI Act will 
give a little bit of a pause to everyone rushing to use this technology to solve all the problems that exist out there. And the reality is, is many companies have, have increased massively their budgets. Last year, we've run a survey, responsible AI survey on three continents. And what we've learned from our clients is that they invest that um, 90% of the, our clients we interview are now investing in AI which the previous year was 54%, which was a massive increase in the appetite for investment. Or on the other hand, if it's not done right, if it's not done considering what are the possible implications, what are the risks associated and what are the boundaries of responsibility by building AI that needs to be shifted, then it becomes a slippery slope. So I hope that this framework will allow companies to reflect, not only to fear disruption and use this as a, as a way of making their operation much more suitable to accommodate the requirements of good AI, of responsible AI, rather than dealing with those issues like an after fact, which is really dangerous. And it's not only dangerous, but also much more difficult to deal with once the application is is in use. It's enough to look at Facebook and Google and the problems they had yeah. um, over the last with their unethical algorithms. So I'm sure we have a lot of people listening to this, Maria, including myself, who was really, really fascinated. And it is in some ways still a very much a growing space and everybody wants to educate themselves, enable themselves and probably read books. And before speaking with you, before this interview, we spoke about Kate Crawford's new book, The Atlas of AI, and how that takes quite a unique viewpoints on this industry. And essentially, if you haven't read it, we'd definitely recommend two. But the premise of the book is that AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. So I'd like to get your viewpoints on that and maybe tell the listeners a bit more about that. Kate's book is wonderful. And yes, like like yourself, I, I'm a big fan of the book and herself. And the reason this book is so important that almost comes with a different narrative of AI showcasing the real effort that is required to build what we call AI. And once you go through this book and understand the natural and human resources needed that are not accounted for, the amount of data that it's required, the amount of computing power uh, that it's required to process and, and extract or deliver this type of insights, you have a different perspective what really AI is and how sophisticated AI is and is not. Everything that we have heard so far about AI was, I would say, much more focused on the tech, on the consequences, but was not able to map the real impact and implication. AI at scale, AI built by likes of Amazon and Google and Facebook actually has on our planet and our society. And I think once you go through that book, the first thing that that probably should take away is that there are implications. There are wider implication than even ourselves being working in this field can have. I think it's the best thing that all we can do right now, because when we start thinking about what can happen if I do this, we are halfway through the journey or making sure that we are addressing especially those consequences that could be negative and also being able to build some sort of resilience to be able to respond to the unintended consequences. Because yes, we are talking about something, a technology that it's not sufficiently tested. And even the data scientists, the engineers that, that are behind the sophisticated um, YouTube algorithm, they confess in the famous, infamous, the social dilemma documentary that they have no idea 
how the algorithm turned out to behave like this. So to their creators, those algorithms seem to be behaving in in unpredictable manner. So we have to be prepared for this type. So that's, to me, the biggest message of the book. There are serious implications of building this. That's a lot of extraction and effort and natural and human resources that come into giving us what we call artificial intelligence. And we have to educate ourselves on understanding the sheer amount of resources that come with it, but also what are all the implications. Kate does a brilliant job in in telling stories about all those different implications of using a data set or another and how data is being collected from, I would say, convicts and on mugshots of convicts and how how dehumanizing is to use all those, the images of people being in the lowest point of their lives and collecting their, even if they are anonymized, the simple fact that that the images of a person that is in the most sensitive and delicate moment in their lives being present and being in a database and is being churned and processed by algorithms can contribute massively to dehumanizing our approach to using personal data and, and, and building AI. And it's a brilliant book and, and we definitely recommend reading it. We've spent most of this discussion, Maria, obviously talking about not so much the downsides of AI, but the importance of using it responsibly. So I guess to cheer people up and tell people about the wonderful applications that there are possible with AI, can you tell us about some of your work with UNICEF and and really championing youth rights, gender rights within AI? Even if it sounded that it's a bit doom and gloom, it's actually I found it quite positive because if we do things right now well, I think the highest chances for us to have an AI that works according to our needs to flourish and to have a good life. And to a certain extent, all these narratives about the dark side of AI Although at the beginning, when we heard it, it was intimidating, it was downcasting. I take it now as the best way for us to be alert, the best way to be vigilant. And I want our listener to take this from our conversation, the fact that we need to understand this, to be able to be better prepared, to be alert and not to sleep or walk blindly into a future that has been designed for us by a small group of people and automated that will give us no choice and will leave us with little room to make decisions uh, independently. When it comes to the work I've been doing with UNICEF and with the World Economic Forum, was more to advocate the fact that our children are exposed to artificial intelligence. And in most of the cases, the parents and educators have no idea how intense this exposure to artificial intelligence our children have. The fact that they are stick to their devices. And if you look around, children as young as six months old and all all the way up to adults and ourselves are glued to our screens. And they spend a significant amount of time either using uh, playing games that are powered by artificial intelligence or on social media. Then again, it's powered by artificial intelligence. And with that, their perception and their opinions are being shaped by algorithms that are being designed by someone in Silicon Valley. How happy we are with it, allowing um, these algorithms with obscure because we don't know the actual interest of the developers and companies behind those obscure algorithms to educate our children. And at first it was a matter of raising awareness. And then we, we entered the process of galvanizing a group of experts to be able to develop some sort of a guidance. And that's what we have done with UNICEF. 
We have um, public policy guidance for AI for Children that is now being piloted by the government of Scotland and government of Malta and several other private organizations around the world with the view of supporting uh, public policy experts around the world to understand what are the implication of AI being used in the various contexts where children uh, live their lives, not just in um, educational contexts, which was uh, where most of the focus is, but in um, entertainment, but also in uh, health settings, in transportation, and being able to give them enough ammunition and enough content to be able to draw appropriate recommendation in in their policies that will allow the developers and owners of those solutions to produce the right guardrails security measure for the children. And it's exciting to see how much the UNICEF team have done in the last two years. So big kudos to them. And I will encourage you to follow the AI for Children program and UNICEF, UNICEF because they went above and beyond and they engage with children around the world. They held workshop in South America and Africa and Asia in different parts of Europe and sit down with children to understand What's the perception they had on AI? What do, do they really understand what happens behind the screens? And because they are so entrenched in, in this world and they, they actually live alongside AI, what can we learn from their experience? What are the positives we need to take further? And what are the negatives they perceive, if any? And those findings have helped us shape the public policy in a way that I would dare to say that's unique in the world because we have had this massive consultation with teens from different cultures, with different backgrounds. And we've tried to bring that perspective all in one and support all different policymakers around the world, not just the ones in developed countries or the ones that already have national AI strategies. Brilliant. So a lot of lot of optimism there, a lot of exciting things going on. Looking at the clock here, Maria, we, we better finish up. But last question, what does the future say to you? So if we have this conversation five years time or in 10 years time, what would we be talking about then? I really hope in five years time, we'll talk more about us as humans rather than talking about artificial intelligence. I think that something that has become quite clear during this pandemic is how much we need each other as humans. And there are certain things, no matter how well a machine will perform, should never replace the human interaction that that makes us who we are as humans. Whenever I get a little bit uh, disappointed, or I would say let down by how some people have used AI, even looking at big tech companies playing or not their role in society, then I look to someone like DeepMind and I will encourage you all, if you feel sometimes depressed or discouraged about the future of AI, look at DeepMind and the work they are doing right now, because they are demonstrating hands on heart how using AI can actually change the face of the planet. And that's what I'm the most excited about, is the fact that we can make a huge difference. There's a lot of work in between us and that moment when we actually make a big difference, but it's down to us how well we take this journey and how honest we do it and how brave we are in in the face of the fact that AI will show us how corrupt and how 
not very nice we are as humans, but it's okay because that's part of the journey of living together. And if you have enough bravery to address that, you already solve most of the problems. So I hope that in five years time, we will talk about, on one hand, the latest discovery of, of cures of various diseases, but also about other things, about creativity, about, you know, solving this mental health pandemic and stop blaming uh, the devices that come between us. Because I, I think, you know, sooner we acknowledge that it's not a technology problem, it's a human problem, we have more chances to re, re-engage with each other and rebuild those relationships that have been so affected in the last um, 20 years or so. Well, we'll have to set it up then. September 2026, Maria, let, let's have another discussion, see how far we've come. I've no doubt we'll reach it. Um, and in the show notes, I'll definitely include... Um, access to that DeepMind portal you were mentioning, Maria, as well as some of the work UNICEF are doing, the AI framework the PwC have released. Lots of, of brilliant content there, Maria. So thank you so much. Uh, really great to have you on the show. I'm sure everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for watching. Now, next up on Alter.com forward slash future says will be Nikita Fadiv, founder of Fastenar Digital, will be speaking about all things cryptocurrency. See you there.